Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Last time I was here bringing a sermon, it was in our opening series for the year, and I was preaching from the words of Jesus contained in John 15 when he was teaching the disciples after he had been betrayed and after the Last Supper. And he was talking about uh, vines and branches and fruit and how uh, we, the branches, are to be in the, him, the vine, and that this is the only way by which we will bear the kind of fruit that God wants us to bear, fruit of a Christ-like life, uh, as Paul calls it often, the fruit of the Spirit. And last week, Ellie introduced us to the letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus. And she spoke powerfully of our identity, as Paul puts it, of being in Christ, in the vine, bearing the fruit of the vine. She spoke of lives that reflect this identity and are lived out in all the riches of God's great blessings to us. So let's continue in Ephesians. Let's pick it up at verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let me pray. Father, as we continue to open up your word this morning, as we uh, unpack something of the writing of Paul to the Ephesian church, Lord, let it not be my words we hear, but for each of us in the room, may your spirit be speaking to us. May your spirit be opening our eyes to who you are and who we are in you. So we give you this space now and pray that this won't just be understanding. 
it'll be you at work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after his outburst of praise and worship at the beginning of the letter, Paul quite naturally jumps into prayer. There's nothing like focusing on the, the, the blessings of who God is to draw us into dialogue with this God. And Paul does that, and what a prayer it is. Now, clearly, Paul had heard some good things about the church in Ephesus. Uh, he says, for this reason, which links back to the previous part, clearly they were a people who were in Christ, as Paul says. They had been uh, marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. They were followers of Jesus. And they had been blessed with all the wonderful blessings that he had articulated at the beginning. Remember in verse 3, he said, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So these people uh, had laid hold of this, had appropriated it, were working it out. And he says, For this reason, I'm praying for you. And as such, they are people that uh, are on his heart. And then he goes on and he says, I've heard about you. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and I've heard about your love for all the saints. It's interesting that he distills down the reputation of the church to these two things. Their faith and their love for all the saints. Isn't it... There's something really simple here that we tend to make so complex. For here are the two uh, foundation stones, if you like, the two fundamentals of what it actually means to be the people of God. We become a people of faith. We live in faith and we are the fruit of faith. And God's love dwells in us and we find ourselves having love for one another. Remember, Jesus says elsewhere, uh, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. Your love for one another. What a reputation to have. It really encompasses everything that it means to be a follower. I wonder, it's a good point to pause and just think, I wonder what Paul would say about the RBC community. What reputation would he see in us? Would it be that he might comment on us having faith? Or are we too dependent on our own understanding? Or too reliant on our own efforts? Or are we too dependent, uh, too independent in the sense of looking after our own needs that we don't have an expression of love for all the church? Would we be seen as a people who love one another? I'm not answering those questions. They're rhetorical questions. But it's worth asking them when Paul affirms this in the Ephesian church. And then we move into this prayer. Here we see the pastoral heart of this great man, Paul. Paul was a church planter. He was an apostle. He went all over that Near East and he was planting churches left, right and centre. But everyone where he planted a seed, he carried something of that church in his heart. And that's why we have his letters. 
because they are filled with His love for the people of God, that they would enter more and more into the fullness of what it means to be the people of God, living out their faith in community with one another. And he carries it in his own prayer life. He, you can feel the weight that he carries. It's not just a side comment saying, and as he sets out a letter, and don't forget I'm praying for you. He actually tells them exactly what he's praying. He says, ever since, ever since, and I have not stopped, and I keep asking, persevering prayer. And he tells them exactly what he's praying for them. And this prayer has spoken to me quite powerfully over recent years, for some years now. This simple prayer in Ephesians 1.17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What strikes me about this prayer is that it is so different to my approach to things, my understanding of things. You see, when I think of my relationship with God, where do I go first? My response is immediately about what I should do or what I should do better, where I need to improve. I look at improving my relationship by focusing on my efforts. I need to spend more time in prayer. I should read the Bible more. It'd be good to get away and be alone with God more often. I need to chat to him more. I need to trust him more. I need to hear him more. I need to seek him more, etc., etc., etc. The focus is on me. But that's not the approach that Paul takes. Do you notice he doesn't pray for the Ephesian church that they would be more disciplined, more connected? He doesn't pray uh, that they would slow down, do less, be more diligent, apply themselves more, fill, um, more fully. No. He asks God to do something. He asks God to give something of himself to his people. He asks that God would give them his spirit. Now, to pay attention to my own uh, disciplines in the Christian life is not bad and not wrong. <laughs> yes, I do need to read my Bible more. And yes, I do need to pray more. And you know what? That's an endless pit because you never can do it enough. But the wonderful freeing thing here is that it's not up to me. It's not reliant on my efforts. It's actually God who gives something so that we might know him better. The simplicity of it is wonderful. And he gives his spirit. And Paul articulates two aspects of the spirit's work in this prayer. Firstly, he says that he wants us to have the spirit of wisdom. That is that we would have a godly understanding, a god perspective. Now clearly my focus on my own efforts in the sense of uh, somehow pursuing my relationship with God shows and demonstrates that I need my understanding changed. <laughs> it's not all Mike-centric. 
in our world, we are shaped by the world we live in. We are shaped by the culture we've grown up in and been formed in. There's a diversity of cultures in the room, so I'm going to speak from my culture because I can't speak to others. (laughs) But in our Anglo-Western culture, we are a product of consumerism. We are buyers. We We are a product of individualism. It's about me and my little unit and what I do. We are a product of a scientific mindset that says that it's all about the mind. And all these things have infiltrated our faith and our church. The church, not just our church, the church. So we become individual followers of Jesus. We jump from church to church to find what works for me. Consumerism. And we approach our faith with our minds all the time. And we think we can figure it all out until something doesn't quite fit or God turns up or does something or doesn't do something that our framework says that he should or shouldn't do. And we have a faith crisis because we've embedded it in our minds. We are a product of the world we've grown up in. So we need the spirit of wisdom to change our understanding. We need to be able to see things from a God perspective. Uh, Paul writes this uh, verse to the Roman church, another church in another city, but about the same thing in Romans 12 where he says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is another passive context. It doesn't say by you renewing your mind. We are passive in that, in the grammar. Our mind is renewed for us. Arguably, that's a reference back to the giving of the spirit of wisdom so that we would understand things the way God wants us to understand them. And it's as we receive the spirit of wisdom from God that our minds are renewed, our thinking is transformed. If we don't experience this, then all the effort in the world, on our part, will be worthless. Our actions will become works and legalism. And our efforts must always be initiated by and built on God's lead. I say this and I'd want to drive this home for us, particularly in a season where the evangelical church has become uh, focused and, uh, and concerned about things because the evangelical theology of the 50s and 60s and 70s is being challenged by what we're seeing and experiencing in the world around us. Our faith should not be dependent on a theological framework. Our faith must be dependent on the one who is the king of all, Jesus. And the God of all, the gracious Father. But there's a second component to this simple prayer, and that is that God would give us a spirit of revelation. We can do nothing of ourselves to discover God. 
There's nothing inherently in us that will enable us to discover God. Yet it is in God's very nature to reveal himself to us. He doesn't hide himself. He's been called the hound of heaven. He chases after us to reveal himself to us. And he does this in a whole variety of ways, from the general revelation of creation and the wonder of the world in which we live, to the specific revelation that is revealed in the man who is Jesus Christ. And on through to the special revelation that happens in each follower of Jesus as the Spirit dwells within us. Here Paul is asking God to reveal himself, to show himself, to be present in a way that the people will get to know him better. Get to know him better. Not our understanding of him, but him, the personal Yahweh of the people of God. It's all of God. Paul is asking God to do all this for the church. That God by his spirit would make it possible for them to know him better. It's a liberating truth, folks. It's a liberating truth. Now hear me right. It's right that we use our minds. It's right that we think things through. It's right that we give good attention to theology. But we must not build our faith on our theology. Because God will always be bigger than anything we can construct. Always. Because once you've constructed a framework that can contain God, He no longer is God. I've become God because I've got God contained in my framework. So to have this sense that God would give us a wisdom and a revelation that enables us to sit in this world and hold the mystery of who God is and hold loosely to those theological concepts we've constructed is wonderfully freeing. And there's an even greater depth to what he's praying here. You see, our English is so limiting at times, isn't it? So there's a little word in here that is spelt Y-O-U. And because we have been brought up in... Uh, an individualistic society, we think about it as you and you and you and me, individuals. But in every reference through this prayer, it is plural. It is you all together. You all together. So he is praying this for the Ephesian church. He's praying this for the church. He's not talking about a collection of believers. He's talking about them together, a community. It's not that I would get to know God better, but that we together would get to know God better. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What a picture it is, a family growing in this way, that all our collective understanding would discover a God perspective, that as a body together we would experience and know a revelation of God, an increased revelation of who he is in his character and being. This, folks, is the church awakening. This is the church going forward in its relationship with its Father and God. 
This is the church discovering more of the heart of God. And as we get to know God better, Paul says in his next part of his prayer, he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. The eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we'd get to know things and sense things and see things and experience things in new ways. We'll perceive things in ways that will affect and change our day-to-day living as we get to know God better. And he asks that the eyes of our heart would be particularly enlightened to two things. The first is the hope to which he has called us. Our culture offers very little hope. There is very little basis for hope. We're all too familiar with meaninglessness, but we don't really know hope. The loss of hope for the present is invariably based on a loss of hope for the future, for tomorrow. And for most people today, hope is little more than hoping or wishing that tomorrow will be good, or perhaps even a little better. But for Paul and for the follower of Jesus, hope represents the certainty of something that is not yet fully present. It is the certainty of something that is not yet fully present. A certainty built upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the restored relationship between God and his people that Jesus brought. And in the light of that restoration... God will not let his purposes fail in their final achievement. There is a hope for the future. Look again at the blessing spelled out at the start of the letter. Because he says this hope is linked to the riches of his glorious inheritance. Those spiritual blessings in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. That is what is our inheritance. That is what we have. We have a foretaste of it now, but that is what we have assured for us in the future. And that is assured for us and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Hope that comes from knowing who we are and who we belong to. Knowing who we are and who we belong to. Who we are is the fruit of the blessing. Who we belong to is knowing God better. So he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open. But then it's as though Paul also figures this seems like maybe the Ephesians are thinking. This is all too good to be true. And you know what they say, if it's too good to be true, then it's probably not, because how could God ever do this? Could he really do this? Could he really form a motley bunch like us into a family of sisters and brothers who are growing together in our understanding of our Father? Could he really do that? So Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would also be enlightened to the incomparably great 
power for us. It's not just as simply uh, that he's praying for God's power to be present in us. It's not the power that was expressed at creation when all things came into being and seemed so distant to us because that was back at the dawn of time. It's a power for us, for those who believe. You see, God is able. In the next chapter or two, in chapter three, Paul there says, you know, he talks about God being able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. He is able to do that. He is able to. It's not just a theological framework about how God works or who he is. He is actually, tangibly, realistically able to release this power in the world. And it is for us. He can give us his spirit. He can renew our minds. He can reveal himself to us. He can enable us to get to know him better. I wonder, do you believe whether he really can? We all know our own struggles and maybe you're thinking, yeah, but for me, I'm not sure. I still have these difficulties. So Paul drives it home because he said, if, if you wonder if he really can, have a look at what he did with Jesus because it is the same strength, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him above all things. That same power that gave Jesus all authority, that same power is at work in us. Hello, church. Isn't that an incredible concept? That that power that exalted Jesus, enabled Jesus to conquer death and set him as king of all creation, that power is at work in us and is for us. For all of this, God sent his son. For the church, God sent his son. For the church, God raised Jesus from the dead and conquered death. For the church, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place. For the church, God has placed Jesus in authority over everything. All of this incredible display of power was and is for the church because Paul says God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Don't ever, don't ever lose heart about the church. The institution in the church gets it wrong. Broken, inadequate, fallen members of the church get it wrong. But the church, collectively, the people of God, which is this collection through time and space that Jesus is the head of is, holds this immensely important place in the heart of God. We are that church. We're a local expression of the people of God. So it is to us that God reveals himself. 
all this incredible display of power is for the church. It's for us. It's for you and it's for me. Most importantly, it's for us all together. You see, God loves the church. He loves his people. And God is for the church. He's on our side. He's our champion. You see, God loves us. And he's for us. And you know what? God does love you. And he is for you. Can I challenge you and encourage you? If you do nothing else this week, take that one sentence prayer of Paul and pray it for the church. Pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gracious Father, would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that together we might know him better. Perhaps if you're struggling in your faith in a particular way at this time, maybe God hasn't turned up as you hoped he would. Or maybe there's crisis in your life. Or maybe you're wrestling with big life questions and you don't feel that you're receiving the kind of answer that strengthens your faith. Pray this prayer for yourself. And rest in it. Knowing that God is for us and longs to answer us in this way. Let me pray. Oh God, our glorious Father. Forgive us for when we have made our relationship with you so complex. Forgive us when we've framed our relationship with you solely or, or, or largely on our understanding of you. And we've lost sight of actually knowing you. So for all of us today, I pray that you would help us to know you better. That you would give freely of yourself. Maybe there are some in the room who have never really known you. God, challenge them. May they pray this prayer and discover you turning up in ways that are unexpected and real. For those in the room who are struggling at this time with their faith, Father, may they pray this prayer of Paul and find you faithful. Not because you give the answers they want you to give, but because you show yourself to them. You turn up for them. And for us as a community, Lord, may we pray this prayer because we would love to be a people who are known for our faith and our love for all the saints. Could you work this in us, God? We pray you will. We pray you would find surrendered and open hearts 
so that you can work this in us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one, Lord, that you rose from the dead, the one that you have exalted and placed above all things for your church. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.